Welcome, hobos, to another four minutes of threads. We're starting here from the 48th minute of the film, so just to recap, the bomb has dropped, the initial wave of the attack has occurred, but the worst is yet to come. The worst, the most horrible scenes, those that are absolutely fused into our brains, that happens in these coming four minutes. As you know, the first detonation is high in the atmosphere, which is used to send out a massive electromagnetic pulse across Britain and Northwest Europe, which destroys communications and electric devices. And then another drops. This is the one which famously causes the female shopper to wet her trousers. But the big one, the thumping, terrifying one, has yet to drop. As Jimmy tells us in our four minute segment here, this is just the start of it. Come on! Just the start of it! Jimmy and Bob have taken shelter on hearing the siren under their work lorry. Remember they work at a joinery? Uh, most definitely a joinery, as a frustrated Bob shouts to the crowd a few minutes before the siren starts. It's a bloody joinery, not a timber yard. He shouts that because a crowd of desperate customers were flocking round him and Jimmy, and we assume this is because they are, at the last minute of course, uh, demanding woods, uh, planks, joists to assemble their various fallout shelters and inner refuges at home. So at the bloody joinery, not a timber yard. The boys dive beneath the lorry, which shakes and shudders as the blast wave passes over, and it whips up debris and sawdust all around them. When it passes, Jimmy emerges and drags a poor stunned Bob behind him, and as Jimmy wipes himself down, it's poor Bob who looks skyward and instantly spies the problem. Jesus Christ, the dummy. The dummy. That's a famous line from Threads, of course, but let's listen to what's going on behind Bob's dialogue. We hear screams, of course, and the rumble of the blast wave, but laced throughout that horrible background noise are two particularly distressing sounds, babies crying and dogs barking. Listen again and pick out those poor innocent things, babies and dogs. Jesus Christ, the dummy. The dummy. So Jimmy jumps in the car, slams the door shut, causing all the sawdust to shiver and slide down the windscreen. He's off to find Ruth. But if only he had stayed with Bob, because we know that Bob survives and goes on to, later in the film, meet up with Ruth, where they both enjoy some raw, irradiated sheep on the moors. But no, Jimmy goes off to find her and... For doing that, for being so gallant and brave and for his first thought being of Ruth, 
We could forgive him all his previous grumping and moaning about being tied down. And, of course, we can maybe overlook his dalliance in the back of the car up on the moors with some girl he met in the pub. Because Jimmy's last act, before disappearing forever, is to make sure Ruth is alright, we can forgive him. So Jimmy is all action and urgency. Leaps in the car. Car won't start because of the EMP, of course. He swears, he jumps back out and he runs away. Runs to find Ruth. All action from Jimmy. Whereas Bob's reaction is the exact opposite. He just stands there, frozen. His hand to his mouth, staring up at the mushroom clouds. He doesn't look scared. Just stunned. I suppose this is the the panic response. The, the shock shoves one man, Jimmy, towards action and another into shock and stillness. And yes, when we see Bob later in the film, it's the same thing. He's slow, sad, listless, lethargic. Of course, that could be starvation and illness and depression, or it could be Disaster syndrome. We've looked before in the podcast about so-called disaster syndrome and poor old Bob does seem to fit with that exactly. And his reaction is, I suppose, correct. (laughs) Because there's no point running. There's no point screaming, no point panicking. Not that logic is playing a part in his choices here, but nonetheless, his lethargy and shock and inaction save him. It's Jimmy, the action man, who dies. Which then (laughs) raises the eternally horrible question, whose fate is preferable? Jimmy's presumably quick death? Or Bob's survival to wander frozen and starving on the moor? Living on throughout the fallout and the starvation and the nuclear winter? I know which fate I'd rather have. So we have more street scenes of people running and screaming, Jimmy in amongst them. And then we move to the Kemp house, where they are in similar chaos. Mr and Mrs Kemp are trying to hurriedly pile together their inner refuge. They've got the door propped against the wall. Now they need to pile a high with mattresses and bin bags stuffed with clothing, as directed by Protect and Survive. We know from the previous four minutes that Mr Kemp was gamely trying to assemble one of these shelters, unscrewing the kitchen doors, but the rest of the family ignored it. Mrs Kemp complained that he was going to scratch the paintwork. Alison was squeezing past getting ready for school and young Michael just seemed to think it was all an adventure. No one except sensible and sad-faced Mr Kemp was taking it seriously. Well, now they are. Now Mrs Kemp is wildly throwing things around the room, trying to pile up the bags and the mattresses. And in the chaos and shouting, I think I hear Mr Kemp call her Rita. Now, the actress who plays Mrs Kemp is, in real life, called Rita. Her name is Rita May. And I interviewed um, Rita a few months ago for this podcast about Threads. She was absolutely lovely, told some good stories, and you'll find it in the archive if you haven't heard it. Well, I think in this scene that Mr Kemp calls her Rita, 
which could be a mistake, but then Mrs Kemp's first name is never established. She's just known as Mrs Kemp. So perhaps her name is Rita in the film. But nonetheless, it's quite interesting that in the chaos of all, he calls out Rita. So listen here and let me know what you think. It does sound to me like, come on, Rita, give us a hand with this sack. Speaking of Jimmy being all action, his father, Mr Kemp, is doing likewise here. Finally, he is vindicated. Finally, he's back at work. As we know, Mr Kemp had been made redundant from his typically masculine job at the steelworks. And as we discussed in previous episodes, he is perhaps deliberately portrayed as a man who has lost his typical masculine role, his traditional role, and is perhaps being a bit emasculated because we see him taking on the role of the house husband, wearing an apron as if to emphasise that, as if to gently poke fun at him. I know these days that's not fashionable in our days of... uh, doing away with gender stereotypes, but remember this is the 80s, of course. So Mr Kemp is perhaps very, very gently being mocked or made fun of, lost his status as a manual worker and as a family breadwinner, and now here he is making dinner, rushing around with an apron on while his wife sits at the table, at the head of the table, waiting to be served. But now, finally, Mr Kemp is back in charge back at work. He's a man again, doing macho things, building and protecting and securing, or at least trying to. So he had lost his role as head of the family, protector of the family, and here he gets it back at last. Protector and defender. The traditional role of the dad and husband. And how cruel is it that he gets this role back at the very last instant, only to lose the family that he's trying to defend. Meanwhile, down in the bunker beneath Sheffield City Hall, the staff are plotting the bomb bursts and assembling a picture of the local devastation. Compared to the scenes we've just witnessed, they are all calm. Some of them, very casually, have cigarettes dangling from their gob. With the men clustered round the board, with the dingy atmosphere, the dim light, the cigarettes, it seems to me like a bookies. You almost expect a man to wander in with a newspaper rolled up under his arm, asking his pals if they've had any luck. So the atmosphere is certainly subdued, people are engrossed in their task, and this pushes out perhaps any tendency to panic. But even if they are simply engrossed in their work, there is a strangely slack and casual feel. Uh, One of them plotting the bomb burst says, "Mm, something on the airport, I think. (laughs) He says that as though he's discussing traffic jams. You know, a bit tricky out by the airport. I'd avoid that, I think. They're also shielded, of course, physically and emotionally, from the hell that is unfolding on the surface. So for now, they are still men and women at work, getting the job done, a bit subdued, a bit quiet, a bit unnaturally calm. They have not 
yet started to crack. On the surface, 80 megatons have fallen in the UK, and Jimmy is still running through the streets, running towards his death. And we never find out what that death is. And I think that's a brilliant move. Because why should we be told? Same with our Alison. She vanishes too. Why should we be told how she dies? Do we think that in a nuclear holocaust, all the survivors would have death certificates issued? for their loved ones and would get to view the body which had been neatly cleaned and arranged with dignity at the funeral parlour. No, there'd be no such kindness, no such organisation, no such ceremony, no such mercy or hope. Certainly we did try to organise that in the early Cold War. In the archives I've seen papers from the 50s setting out the procedures to be followed in mortuaries after atomic attack. And yes, the the procedures are borrowed largely from the mass death events in the Blitz. Try to identify the body, try to clean it, try to perhaps, and yes, it's unpleasant, piece parts together to make a full body. Certainly that happened in the Blitz. I have read, I think it was in Juliet Gardner's brilliant book, Wartime Britain, of a a civil defence worker who was collecting bodies and body parts on a bomb site, and he saw under the rubble what looked like a a torn black carpet, or like a shaggy rug, and he, he pulled and tugged at the piece of shaggy carpet and then realised he was pulling at a dead girl's hair. So let's always be mindful of course of the horror of the Blitz by acknowledging nuclear war would have been so much worse. That's not to lessen the terrible things which happened of course under conventional bombing in the war. Certainly there were valiant efforts and successful efforts to pull bodies in the rubble, identify them and give them decent burials. And we tried to cling on to that process in the early Cold War before eventually being forced to realise it was a hopeless endeavour. In the next scene, we are in the middle-class Beckett household. And yes, class is crucial here, because the Beckett's, being wealthier than our Kemp family, have a big, sturdy Victorian house with a substantial cellar. And it's here where they now retreat, going step by step down the stairs, helping poor elderly Mrs Beckett, Ruth's gran, of course who's just been discharged from hospital, is clearly very frail, and the implication of course is that she was bundled out of hospital in the desperate drive to clear the hospitals in advance of the nuclear attack. We saw Mr and Mrs Kemp in their cramped and insubstantial little house, shouting, yelling, piling the mattress and bags high in the front room. The Becketts, with the protection of their big massive house, are less panicked. They have secure, century-old stone walls around them. And uh, maybe, given that the writer of Threads, Barry Hines, was left-wing and very class-conscious, 
Maybe the Becketts are shown as being significantly calmer because they have a confidence that comes with having lived a life of money and comfort and security. Whereas the Kemps have perhaps gone through life knowing they are just one pay packet away from trouble and that there's always some kind of threat around the corner, whether it's redundancy or nuclear holocaust. There's always something ready to whip the rug from under your feet. So as our middle-class Becketts calmly help poor old granny down the steps, Ruth hangs about upstairs. She's obviously in shock. Her parents call her. Ruth, please, come and help your grandmother. Ruth, please. But she seems to be displaying the same reaction as Bob. Frozen. Stricken. Unable to take any action. There follow a lot of quick, short scenes now, building up the horrible feeling of panic and chaos, of course. Jimmy running, the streets littered with paper and debris, cars jammed onto pavements, doors flung open, useless, of course, after the EMP. The Kemps are still frantically trying to assemble their shelter. Ruth finally bursts into energy and she runs out into the street, collides with someone and falls to the ground. And then a very sad scene. Back at the Kemps, we see young Michael who has crawled into a corner of Jimmy's aviary and he's huddled there, crying. And as he cries, the birds in the aviary, they tweet and flutter around him. One of them lands on his hair and it's almost like a caricature of a Disney scene. You know those scenes where the Disney princesses wander through the forest or they're, they're doing the laundry with birds and squirrels hopping around dancing on their fingers, twirling on their arms, that kind of thing. It's a cartoon image, of course, of peace and serenity, being at one with nature, everything harmonious. And here it's turned viciously inside out, showing a terrified boy cowering in the corner, waiting to die, whilst those Disney birds twitter and land gently on his hair. As he crouches there and cries, Mrs Kemp suddenly becomes aware of him. She's been driven to panic, of course, by the bomb, driven to furious hard work by her husband, and suddenly it all stops. All of this falls away, and she becomes nothing but a mother. Her maternal instinct, her desire to protect her son, pushes everything aside. She stops her work, she stops building that shelter, and she stands up. And she says, Michael, Michael. And then, silence. All sound is stripped from the film and we just see Mrs Kemp's face flash into black and white. This is Sheffield taking its direct hit. I believe the target for this bomb is supposed to be the Tinsley Viaduct. I have a copy of the script of Threads here and at this particular moment when Mrs Kemp's face after crying Michael goes black and white the direction is simply Mrs Kemp catches fire. In the silent period which follows this moment 
with Mrs. Kemp's face bleached to black and white in the nuclear flash, we see the infamous scene of milk bottles melting on the doorstep. We see Mr. Kemp furiously trying to beat out the flames. He grabs at the curtains and pulls them from the window. Even amidst the flames, he is still all action. Bless his heart. And then comes the blast wave, blowing the window in. And with that, the sound suddenly returns to the film. And everything is chaos and explosions. We see Woolworths burst into smithereens. We see a row of terraced houses disintegrate. You might actually recognise those houses uh, from Mick Jackson's earlier documentary, A Guide to Armageddon, where the footage was reused. We see British home stores explode. Everything that is sturdy and reliable and familiar is turned to dust and rubble. A block of flats is seen to explode as a 1930s modern block, which does indeed exist in Sheffield, is at the top of Hoxley Road. And uh, real Threads obsessors will know that Hoxley Road is where the Kemp family lived. If you find it on Google Street View, you'll recognise the street. You'll see the turn where Mr Kemp's neighbour had driven after he'd packed up his family and spot the dog and taken off for Urjacks in Lincolnshire, where there's only a row of houses and a pub. And you'll see, if you follow the turn his car takes on Google Maps, that you would reach a dead end. (laughs) So you're not getting to Lincolnshire that way. So everything is exploding. The blast wave is gutting and crushing and collapsing everything, including the distinctive uh, nicknamed Egg Box building of Sheffield Council. When we see the Egg Box building blast apart, we see our team down in the bunker. And they finally get a taste of what's going on in the real world upstairs. The blast wave shudders through the ceiling, sending the light fixtures collapsing and a few massive chunks of concrete come thumping down onto their desks. Mercifully uh, for us, the explosions and the screens halt. The screen goes black and text tells us that the East-West Exchange now totals 3,000 megatons. Now this number (laughs) is almost meaningless. The destruction it implies is so vast and so dreadful that it almost doesn't matter. You know, once you get to a thousand megatons, I suppose you can stop counting. But to try and put that figure in perspective, let's remember that the Hiroshima bomb was about 18 kilotons. That tends to be the highest estimate of its yield, 18 kilotons. A kiloton, of course, is equal to 1,000 tonnes of TNT. Well, kilotons are obviously no longer sufficient to describe what's going on here. We need to move up to the language of megatons. And one megaton is equivalent to a million tonnes of TNT. And here we're talking of 3,000 megatons, so it's almost, it's un... It's insane destruction. So the East-West Exchange, so far, 3,000 megatons, 210 of which have fallen on Britain. 210 megatons on Britain. Bearing in mind that the BMA, the British Medical Association, said in the 1980s, 
that Britain's NHS, National Health Service, could not cope with one single Hiroshima-sized bomb. So we couldn't cope with one 18 kiloton. And here comes 210 megatons. So, yep, the game is up. We get more scenes of fire. Um, and again, we've moved beyond fire here. We're probably seeing a firestorm now. I've covered firestorms in previous episodes, so please do seek that one out in the archive if you haven't listened to it. It's a, if I may say so, it's a good episode. So what we're seeing here now is surely a firestorm. In one scene, we see a burning vehicle and a, a white liquid is gushing from it. And if we if we look closely, we can see that it's a milk float. Uh, we've discussed previously how milk features a lot in threads. And so here we have one, perhaps it was the milk float we saw earlier, dropping milk off with the Kemps. Perhaps the same milk float which delivered those melting milk bottles. But now it's crashed, abandoned, and its bottles have either burst or melted in the heat and the milk is spurting out through the cracks and gaps in the rubble. We also get a glimpse in the sequence of a burning teddy bear. Everyone remembers the earlier scene of the burning and melting E.T. doll, but it's easy to blink and miss here the burning teddy. After the teddy, we see an old man trying to drag himself over a pile of rubble, and we see cars and buses looking like black steel skeletons burning. And then comes another horrible image. Again, one that you could blink and miss. It's a person on a bike and they've been thrown into a tree. And the bike and its rider just hang there, lodged in the branches and burning. This is the, again, something Threads excels at, presenting a horrific, relentless succession of terrible images And I believe Mick Jackson mentions that in my interview with him, which again you'll find back in the podcast archive. Mick Jackson, the director of Threads. Um, He said that, you know, we we need to understand nuclear war through these images because there's no language for this amount of horror and destruction. Like I said earlier, with 3,000 megatons, the, the, the brain can't take in what that means on the ground for people, for things, for trees, for teddy bears. You have to see it in these horrific, memorable images. So the the burning bike lodged in the tree, the melting milk bottles, the teddy bear on fire, these are images which get the meaning across more than any number could. Speaking of the bike uh, lodged in the tree, some people have suggested this is Alison. Uh, We know that she had a bike because she used it for her paper round. And indeed, the last time we saw her, she was being sent to the shops by Mrs Kemp. So perhaps she went off on her bike. But uh, I don't think it's Alison. I think, like her brother Jimmy, Alison simply disappears. We are not granted the ease and the satisfaction of knowing what happens to her. More images come on screen. More horror. As I say, this sequence is relentless. We see blood, a fountain of blood spurting red and furious from a black pile of rubble. We see a, a burned hand reaching out and horribly it's it's moving, it's 
clawing, obviously trying to free itself. We see a cat twisting and writhing in the heat. I admit at this point I am looking at the timer on the screen and willing the four minutes to be up because this sequence is tough, especially when you're doing, as I'm having to do, look at things closely, going against the natural instinct to flinch or look away. It was all getting a bit too much. <sighs> the four minutes are over. Yep, even though I first saw Threads as a three-year-old, and I'm now 41, uh, this film still horrifies and terrifies. It never loses a single bit of its power. So Mick Jackson and Barry Hines, who's no longer with us, Thank you for the brilliant work. Now, our next episode on Monday is going to be um, something a little bit different. I have a guest on the podcast. I'm interviewing him tomorrow by Zoom, and we're going to talk about nuclear winter, what it means, how it would work, how plausible is the theory. Of course, nuclear winter plays a huge role in Threads. Threads um, was made just after the theory of nuclear winter first arose in the early 1980s. And it shows us, after the bomb, the horrible effects of a nuclear winter. So we will do a deep dive, as they say, into nuclear winter next Monday. But if you can't wait till then and you want some more episodes, I have released a couple of bonus episodes for patrons. I've started doing this as of last week because I've now got more free time now that my book is finished. And so I've recorded and will continue to record extra bonus episodes for patrons. So if you want bonus uh, extra episodes, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. And to get access to those extra episodes, it costs $3 a month, or that, that's £2.50 a month. And there are currently two episodes waiting for you there, and I will record another one during the week. So please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and you can sign up there. Easy to sign up and easy to cancel. You're not tithing into anything. And I've had a real flurry of new patrons over the past week, so I'm so glad. Um, if you want to sign up for new episodes, then great, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll produce lots more extra bonus episodes. Still doing one every week, of course. That will always be there. That will always be free for you. But extra episodes are available for, as I say, 2 .50 a month. So let's give a shout out and a thank you to the new patrons who've signed up. I also need to say thank you to my kind patron Liz Laurie. Liz signed up ages ago and I, for some reason I forgot to give her a shout out. So sorry Liz and thank you Liz Laurie for being a, a patron. And let me say hello and thanks to the new guys. Hello and thank you to Alex Nolant. Alex signed up just about an hour ago. So hi Alex and thank you. Also Matt Williams, Sashin Bansal, Lucia Fortucci and Robin Ramsey. So it's so great to welcome a whole new batch of patrons. Thank you. So there we are, back on Monday with a, a festive, let's call it a festive special on Nuclear Winter. But if you can't wait until then, as I say, there are bonus episodes waiting for you on my Patreon site. And I will do another one during the week. <laughs>